in the theme growing up and waking up and uh, just reflecting on that it's like a, an ongoing process isn't it it's not like growing up happens and then we're grown up I think there is a, a point where we wake up and we are awake but uh, I think probably most likely everyone here we're still in the process of awakening haven't arrived yet at the fully awakened state. So just reflecting on, on uh, this process of growing up. It's as you know it is it is it does go hand in hand, growing up and waking up, they go hand in hand. And when we're we're little, little babies, little children, it's all about me. It's all about me. Me and what I need and what I like and what I don't like. And that's how it is with little children. And uh, fortunately, you know, when we're babies and, and little toddlers, we're very cute. So, uh, you know, grown-ups don't mind, generally, don't mind to give us what we want and to do what we need. And not always, obviously, to give us what we want. We have to learn the, that there are limits. But basically, you know, life revolves around me when I'm little. Mummy is there for me, and uh, you know everything that is around me is for me. And then as we grow up, we realise oh, there's a few other billion people on the planet, and uh, also all kinds of other species and plants and all kinds of things that that are that have an equal place to me. So we have to learn to uh, give up some of that privilege that we have when we're little children and uh, learn about sharing and, and about generosity about uh, about giving up giving up what I want to make room for what somebody else wants or giving up sometimes what I need to make room for what somebody else needs and that's all part of it it's all part of the growing up process and it seems to be kind of an ongoing process. It gets more and more subtle as the practice continues. Ajahn Sumedho, our teacher in England, who often used to say, used to point to the the Asian community would bring their little children, sometimes really small children, to offer food, alms food. So shortly you'll see our process of receiving meal. And at, at one time in, in the, the monastery there, we would go by with our bowls and people would put, literally just put food into the bowls. We stopped that after some time because it became so, we had so much food that we couldn't eat it all and it was a bit wasteful. But you know, in the early days, that's what we did. And then sometimes people would bring their little children, maybe just one or two years old, and put some nice candy or, or, or a, a, a cutie or something in their hand and say, put it into the bowl. And then the child, you'd see the child looking at this thing. <gasps> <laughs> oh, I want it, I want it, I want it. And then the mum would say, put it into the bowl, and they're like, oh. And then they would let go, and then it would go, to, and then everyone would say, oh, very good, very good, it's really good. You know? So then they'd learn that this is a really good thing to do to give. And it wasn't a, an immediately natural thing to do, you know, but you get the, the gratification of being praised for, for, for doing this uh, generous act. So, you know, it's, it's something we have to learn. <laughs> Because when you're little, you know, you see children, it's my toy, you know. And sometimes you get a very uh, 
wise, mature little beings who come in who, who like to share, but it's not so often. And uh, so, you know, this is kind of an ongoing process, isn't it? Because the, the me and mine story, it keeps playing out throughout our life and what I need and what I have to have for myself. And, and people, you know, in my life, in relation to me, <laughs> you might be familiar with a story like that, I don't know. And uh, it's, it plays out to varying degrees. You know, there's, uh, if you have a strong narcissistic leaning, then it's, it's all about me. And uh, you might, or it might be that you feel, you know, you don't want to think about yourself at all. It's all about others. It's all about others. But there's also a big ego hidden away in that too, that, that cannot actually just receive this, this being, this process that's going on here. So it's always looking outside of itself to other people. I know many people who say, you know, they love to practice loving kindness and they do it for all sentient beings, but they can't do it for themselves. So there's a big ego block there. It might seem like a, you know, a noble thing to be able to be loving to everybody but oneself, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's out of balance. So growing up is about, uh, it's many things, but a part of it is about taking this life process that we have and t taking care of it in a way that is uh, it's respectful of oneself and is also really integrated as part of this this interdependent world, this world that we are completely interdependent with. So as long as we're still in the, in the uh, kind of childlike or immature state, it's, it's still all about me. And the, the more we mature through our practice and also through the challenges of life, then the more it's not about me, but it's about all of it. It's about, or the, or the me is how I am affecting the world around me, the people around me, the environment. So, you know, the Buddha speaks about no self. So you might think, why am I talking about, about me when the Buddha's talking about no self? And no self is not, a, it's not like annihilating the self, but it's recognizing that this, this me, this, this self here, this, this process of Ananda Bodhi here, it's, it's something that can be guided and directed. So, you know, how I use my mind, how I direct my mind or guard my mind, what I choose to put into my mind, and then what I put out, this, you know, it's, it's a dynamic process. This is changing all the time. So if I'm careless, then I just follow old habits. And uh, if I'm not mindful, then there's just that old, deeply conditioned reaction of like and dislike, want and don't want. And uh, it's comfortable on a short term to follow that, but it has uh, very big consequences. So in a way, the, you could say you know, the United States is, is almost like a a right, isn't it, to I, I, can, I can do what I want, have what I want, be what I want. 
and yet that has huge repercussions. It, do, it doesn't come without a cost. So we might be able to get uh, the things we want at the price we want, but you know, what's the, the true price? What's, what's going on behind the scenes? So to look at how we are influencing the world around us, And what we're putting in, because now in this, uh, you know, this age of technology, it's almost like everything is available to us. Just in a little tablet, little, little, you know, flat thing in our pocket, the whole world is available to us. And you know, it's, it's easy to get sidetracked and to get lost and to get uh, pulled into things that are just not benefiting us at all. So to look and to be really mindful, what am I putting into my mind? What am I feeding this mind with? And what am I putting out? And it is, you know, sometimes we might think, oh, well, I'll just quietly do this. Nobody knows. Nobody needs to know. And then, <laughs> well, if you're lucky, something, something happens and it gets revealed an awkward moment and you feel embarrassed if you're lucky. If you're not lucky, nobody, nobody knows and you just carry on with your quiet little you know, unwholesome private uh, whatever you're doing and nobody ever knows about it and it, and it becomes a sort of a, a um, like a, a double life. You know, you've got your hidden world that you get involved in and then you've got the, the person you present. So, you know, if you're living in that way, it's, it's leading in the opposite direction to awakening. It involves hiding, it involves a certain sense of, it could be lying, or um, deceptiveness. So, learning how to, in our inner world and our outer world, like bringing those two together bringing the inner, inner world and the outer world together as, as one thing. And uh, there was a Zen story that I heard many, many years ago that, that really touched me when I was a teenager of a, of a man who had kind of listed many practices he did and one of them was when alone live as though you are with others and when with others live as though you are, be as, be as though you are alone. So it's... it's, it's uh, it's kind of seamless between being on your own and being with others. And this is like a, it's, it's quite a high practice to do that. You know, we all have the sides of ourselves we don't like that probably come out more freely with the people we're closer to, or even maybe, you know, in the, when we're alone. But, to, and, and I'm not advocating that we, you know, spill out all of our stuff publicly to people or anything like that, but to learn to to manage it. So when we really look at uh, the kind of underlying experience, you know, it, it's very simply, it comes down to feeling. So if you go back to that little, little child looking for a pleasant feeling, looking for comfort, so you have the comfort of the, of the milk, very nice, everything's great. There's a, 
the milk that you've been looking for and everything's kind of comfortable and, and peaceful and there's no problem in the world and then you know there's a maybe the clothes are too tight or diapers wet or something and then you know it's all horrible oh no it's unbearable I can't bear it and it's what is going on there is feeling there's a feeling so there's a feeling of comfort there's a feeling of discomfort and when you're a little baby you know you need someone to respond to those things because it's, uh, it's, you know, it's your basic life but as we get older, we don't have to, you know, we don't have to relate in the same way. But we kind of do, actually, to some degree. We're still, we're still running after what's comfortable, what's, what's uh, pleasant. And we're still complaining or getting upset when things are uncomfortable, challenging. So the mature mind is able to open to the pleasant and the unpleasant, to the comfortable and the uncomfortable, to the praise and the blame, to appreciation and you know, not being noticed. So the mature mind is, is even through all of that because it has an inner refuge because we're not looking outside of ourselves for the true refuge. We're not asking the world to tell us we're okay we're not asking the world to, to make life safe or comfortable, because it can't, actually. It can be comfortable for a while. And we can be safe to some degree, but it can't really, this world we live in can't really give us that security that we're looking for. It's only through coming back to presence, being able to open to things as they are, to be, to be able to be with this experience. That is the refuge. So as we develop that uh, strength of awareness that can be with incredible joy, that can be with the simplicity of the breath, and that can be with back pain, you know, when we develop the, the awareness that can be with all of that, that can receive a needling comment from a colleague and just recognize, oh, that person is hurting rather than, they shouldn't be doing that. How do they, why, how dare they speak to me like that? Or to look for a way of needling them back, just to see, oh, that's, there's a contraction there. That person is hurting. They need to feel bigger than me, better than me. May they be well. So we can only go get, get to that place when we have that inner refuge, which knows that this me here is just a process that's going on. It's not a, an, a, there's not an absolute self here that I have to defend or that I can create into anything. My consciousness is looking through these sense doors, looking through these eyes, speaking through this mouth feeling through this body and in that we are all the same we all share the same we are all part of the same awareness the same conscious awareness so when we start to kind of look in that way it's, a, it's like a more awakened way of looking you know, what advantage is there to being one up on anybody or to you know, defending ourselves from anybody. 
I'm not talking about uh, if you're if you're experiencing physical violence or something, then it's good to defend yourself. But, you know, I'm talking more about the the verbal and the kind of emotional digs that can happen. You know, when we when we recognise our common shared consciousness, we don't have to get into that me and you defending myself from you, reacting to you. And it's, a, it's, it's not an easy thing, because it's, a, it's, it's instinctive. We instinctively react. And then in our reaction, we create karma. We create a story. We create me and you. We create another person. We create a dynamic. And that the personality is very invested in that. So it's recognizing that the personality is just, it's like, a, it's like clothing. It's nothing more than that. It's just like an outfit that we got on for this lifetime. And it changes like if we change our clothes, not as, not as rapidly actually, but it doesn't stay the same throughout our life. It's, uh, it's influenced by what we feed our mind with, what we cultivate, what we, what we give. So if we're, if we're coming from a place of personality, invested in our personality, there's a lot of suffering. It's a vulnerable and painful state to live from. And sadly, you know, in, in the, the Western society, is, personality is, is held up as everything. It's that this is who and what we are. But the Buddha was pointing out that this is not who and what we are. This is just like a, like a, a dream or an illusion. And of course, that begs the question, well, and who and what am I? And it's a good question to ask. You know, what is, who am I in this moment? It's a good question to ask when you're caught in the heat of a, an argument. Who am I? Who is defending what here? Or in a moment in nature, you might ask, where am I? You might find that you're just you're not there at all, you're just part of, you're one with. You haven't had to manifest as a personality because nature isn't asking you to, it's just, you're just part of it. So to, you know, to investigate this experience of me and mine is at the core of our suffering, the attachment to me and mine. So it's, this is not about vacating or dissociating or negating a sense of self. It's about knowing and understanding and letting go, moment by moment. So knowing when the, the self-righteous self arises. And then, oh, there's that again. And, the, and knowing what it feels like. And seeing, you know, just asking the question, can I let go? Can I relax around this? You know, just, uh, you know, we hold views like armor. It's like a, you know, stand behind a view, or like a shield. You know, this is my opinion, this is what I think, this is my position, and I'm right. And then you meet up against someone with a different position, and there's conflict. There's duality, there's, there's, uh, there's the seeds of war there. 
So to recognize a view as a view, it's not that we you know, turn into a vegetable that doesn't have any opinions, but just to recognize that that's just, it's just that. It's just that. We all look from different perspectives. So a view is just a view. Something we hold for a while. Maybe it changes. So the Buddha is encouraging us to to really investigate this, you know, what we call me and mine. What is it made up of? How does it manifest? And he points to the five candors as, a, as, a, as one of the ways of looking. So the five aggregates is also known as the five heaps. So the, the aggregate of, of form, like bodily form, this body that, you know, this is my body, this body. It's, you know, it is my body, and it's, it's just, it's also, it's flesh and blood. And at some point it's uh, going to go back to the earth. You might even get a transplant if you've got a bit of somebody else's body in your body. So is that your body or their body? Whose body is it? You know, where does it start and stop? So the body is, Buddha's point of the body is not truly who and what I am. It's, it's what we borrow from nature. We're borrowing it for a while. We're riding in it for a while. And then it'll be time to, to give it back at some point. So we can give it back now. We don't have to wait till we die. We can recognize that this body belongs to nature, here and now. And. Uh, you know, take care of it and respect it as we as we can and, and should really be doing with all of nature. And uh, feelings, so the aggregate, the second aggregate of feelings. I think uh, to be aware of feeling is is a very profound key. It's a key to liberation. So when we when we're not conscious, we're not mindful, we, do, we feel and we react, we feel and we attach. But when we're mindful and we use investigation, then there's a feeling and then we know, oh, this is a feeling of fear. This is a feeling of desire. This is a feeling of contraction. We know the, the feelings as they are. And then when we know them for what they are, we can start to release the grip around the feelings. We don't have to immediately become identified. We don't have to become the feeling. And it's not that we can do that straight away necessarily. We might know it, and then, but we can't let go. But then just stay knowing it. Just keep knowing. Gradually the letting go happens. And then the perception. We all look at the world from our different perceptions, depending on our conditioning, our situation in society. It can also be through, you know, just a visual perception. Somebody's colorblind, or somebody's blind, or somebody's short-sighted, or somebody's got very sharp 20-20 vision. So just looking at these, you know, we all even just looking out of our eyes in different ways and, and from different places. Everybody here in the room is looking from a different perspective. And we forget that we think we're all we're all looking at the same world, but we're each looking in a unique way all the time. So 
So just recognize all that's we you know it's perception. We're looking from different perspectives. So of course we're going to see things differently. Perception is just perception. And then there's the huge array of uh, mental formations, ideas, thoughts, creative thinking, memories, hopes. All sorts of things going on in there, and you know, that feels very personal too. You know, we can we, we educate our minds, we guide and direct our intellect, and uh, certainly, you know, different people have different you know, different minds work very differently, and it can seem very much like, well, this is me, this is mine, this is me and my thought. And then we start to, as we start to meditate with them, we start to take issue with thought. Go away, I'm meditating. You know, this is not the time for thinking. So, this is identification with thought. This is believing that this thought is mine and I can control it, I can, I can make it go away. And just yesterday, I was sitting next to a woman said to me, don't think of elephants. <laughs> it reminded me when I was a little girl and my sister first tried that on me. Left me in the room, and she said, I'm just going away for five minutes and you can think about anything you like, but don't think about pink elephants. So of course, all I could think about was the pink elephants, pink elephants, pink elephants. And you know, that's how it goes. It's, and then we think we're in control. It's, it's my thought, I should be able to control it, do what I want with it. But thoughts kind of have their own energy, really. They come through. And we can. You know, we can give attention to, you know, what we give attention to influences the way the thinking happens. So if we give a lot of attention to thought, then, and, and trying to get rid of thought is a way of giving attention to thought, then we kind of energize the, th the thinking. So, you know, if we have, we can, we can put energy into wholesome thoughts, we can, we can replace unskillful thoughts with skillful thoughts. So this is a helpful thing. So instead of thinking, um, oh my god, I'm so useless, how am I ever going to blah blah blah, or going over and over old stories of painful memories, we can say, we can think, may I be well, may you be free from suffering. And it's, we might not even feel it at first, but we start to put energy into wholesome thinking. So we're, we're taking the attention away from the unwholesome, putting it into the wholesome. And then you know, over time we can also develop the awareness that just is aware of thought, simply that. And the awareness is bigger than the thought, so it's not caught up in it. So thought is, is what it is, and it's, uh, it's not who and what I am. And then there's the, the sense consciousness, the, the six sense bases. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. So these are, you know, it's, it's kind of an overwhelming experience. It's, it feels completely who and what I am, these, these senses. But we can investigate them one by one and develop a different relationship with the senses. I was just recently uh, visiting my family and 
my brother, he loves to play guitar, amongst other things. He kind of taught himself, and he was speaking about, you know, people are afraid of, of a musical instrument because they think you're supposed to do it in a certain way. They think it's supposed to sound a certain way. And then he's encouraging, you know, just to, just to see what it does is it makes a sound, and sound is just one of the senses. It's just a sense. So when you think of it in that way, you don't, there's no setup. It's got to be like this. It's, you know, it's got to sound right. It's just exploring the sense of sound. And then you can do anything. You can make any sound. You can have any length of sound or silent or note and put different notes together. Because nobody's saying it's got to be a certain way. It's just an exploration of the sense of hearing, the ear. And then it's like, you know, things open up. Because we're not thinking in our little box anymore. There's, a, there's room for investigation and we can do that with all of the senses we can do that with the also with seeing you know, with visual consciousness so I'm so I, I very much depend on visual consciousness I used to work for a man who was blind and he commented on goodness you know if you ever get blind you're going to be completely lost because you're so dependent on, on sight and it's true I've never noticed before but it's true I, I, sight is a, is a very important sense for me what I you know you know, in order to get around, in order to uh, read what's going on, uh, what brings me joy. You know, it's all the sight is very, very strong. So, just to an encouragement to investigate your relationship with the senses, and to you know, so you're exploring this sense of self in a new way. So it's not a really what I emphasize is not about that when Buddha talks about no self, he's not negating, he's not saying annihilate the self. There is no annihilation teaching in the Buddha's teaching. But he's saying, have a closer look. Look in a different way. Take an interest. Explore. And see what you find. So we're growing up and waking up at the same time. And the, the beauty of it is that uh, in growing up, we kind of come back to that sense of wonder that we had as a little child. We don't ever become a grown-up, actually. Hopefully. <laughs> if we do, we're really stuck. <laughs> but we come back to that, uh, that inquisitiveness and wonder and openness of a little child. So... Uh, I'd like to offer that for your reflection and I uh, really hope that you, you play with that, investigate it, what the things that I've said, and that it leads to greater freedom, greater joy, greater understanding.